0: Uh, I think we should get going because it's 6:01, and I have a lot to say. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, so let's um, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we are thankful for this night and this time. Uh, we're thankful for a chance to uh, study Your Word and study our brains and study um, some of these questions about how we form habits and addictions. And we pray that You would be and tonight. We pray especially for those who uh, are. are with all kinds of addictions, and we pray, Lord, for um, the skills in our own lives to help ourselves and help others through your Spirit to be free of those burdens. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Um, Okay, Uh, we're going to talk tonight about addiction. Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about how your... Here has a, a habit you're either trying to start or a habit you're trying to change. I'm just curious how it's going. Anybody... Uh, having a lot of success. I'm. I'm trying to remember what people are committed to do now. Like you're trying to have devotionals every day, right, Cheryl? Okay. How's it going? Okay. Good. Guilt is wonderful. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, don't feel. Don't feel terrible. Don't feel terrible. Yeah. No. Um, no, it's great. Uh, I, so uh, build a habit. So if your habit is to do devotionals every day and you did a few days and you missed a day, that's normal. That's great. Just get back on your horse. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's good. Uh, anybody else I, 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 remember, I can't remember what people committed to do, but check in, how's it going? Problems you're having with your habit or success or um, what's it looking like? Bob? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Bob's having to learn to cook so he can survive, and he's he's getting there. All right. That chicken leg sounds delicious. That's good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. Food. Okay. You've got. You want to change that habit? Is what you're saying? You want to change that food? Okay. All right. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Well, now you've identified something. That's good. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that's helpful for me as I think about habit change, uh, we, we talked last week that the first and most important step is awareness, right? It's figuring out um, if, what the habit is and then why you do it. So I, I mentioned a number of times that the habit I'm working on or one of the many habits I'm working on changing is my my daily snacking routine. And I think I mentioned last week that I, I began to realize my, my snacking was related not to hunger but tiredness, right? So that I... I I started realizing I was getting up and was going to eat in the middle of the day not because I was hungry at all, but just because I was exhausted uh, and so it, we'll talk about this tonight, but um, we all have this experience where what's obvious to everyone else is not obvious to us right so i I, I normally get about five hours of sleep a night right so I normally sleep from about midnight to about five am when Asher wakes up um, which is apparently not enough for me uh, and I've been doing this for about two years ever since Asher was born and I started realizing, okay, I'm, I'm snacking all the time, not, I'm, I'm just I'm worn out. And so I get a little burst of energy. Uh, I also noticed that in the evenings, uh, I'll snack a lot in the evenings because I, I have this desire to stay up and I, I get home and my, my me time is between like 10 and midnight, right? When the family's in bed and I can play video games or watch the West Wing or whatever. And uh, I'm eating like crazy because I'm so tired. I can't stay awake and do that. It's not actually that interesting, right? I have to eat so I can stay awake. Uh, So um, my my routine replacement, once I had that awareness of of what my cue was, my cue for eating is not hunger, right? My cue for eating is tiredness. So my routine, I'm working on on changing a different habit now. Working on going to bed earlier uh, with the idea that if I can get into bed between 10 and 11 instead of 11 and 12, maybe I'll eat less throughout the day. So now I'm trying to figure out, well, what are my cues for going to bed? And it's a whole new routine. So last night I was in bed at 1045, which is incredible for me. Um, so I'll say that's a win for this week and I'll stay up till midnight tonight. But um, so th- th- one of the things I realized as I work on this habit replacement thing is very often uh, you realize you have to tackle something different than what you thought you had to tackle, right? So Cheryl's working on doing devotionals every day. Um, let's say I'm not, I'll make something up. Let's say her goal is to do them in the morning and she also has a habit of getting up in the morning and spending 45 minutes painting or whatever. I don't know. Uh, and so... You sound very artistic, right? I'm really impressed. Uh, <coughs> right. So, the, so, you know, the, the reality might be if she wants to do devotionals in the morning, the first habit she might have to change might not be starting devotionals, it might be changing her painting habit. Right? I'm going to paint it another time so that I can space for my devotionals. Right? So, sometimes these things cascade a little bit. That's that keystone habit idea we talked about uh, a few weeks ago. Okay? Any, anybody else want to check in on how their habits are going? I'm interested, so uh, keep me posted, and um, a- a- as we go through, even tonight, if you want to interrupt and talk about your own stuff, that's great. Um, tonight I want to talk mostly about addiction, okay, and so uh, I call this Habits Plus, because it's more complicated than what we've been doing, and so w- w- let me recap just briefly where we've been the last couple of, couple of weeks. Uh, we talked, our first night together, we talked about the idea that habit formation happens in a different portion of the brain than memory, logic, and reason, uh, we also talked about the habit loop which is this idea of of cue, routine, reward, uh, driven by craving. Uh, The next, we talked about starting new habits. And we suggested that if you want to start a new habit, you have to define a cue and a reward. Uh, And we talked about what makes effective cues and rewards. And then last week, we talked about changing existing habits. We said if you want to change an existing habit, uh, it's very difficult to change a cue or a reward. You have to change a routine. Uh, So you have to figure out um, what you can do when you are cued uh, to produce the same reward. I have a habit of um, eating in the middle of the day. I do it because I'm tired. Uh, instead of eating in the middle of the day, maybe I should get up and uh, walk around the building five times to wake up in the cold. Right? Five times is a lot. Let's once. Mm. Or uh, actually, I just read a book about um, CEOs who play video. Games. Maybe I should um, get cued by being tired instead of getting up. Maybe I should play a five-minute video game like a Sporkle or something, uh, and then get the same reward of being awake. Right. So it's the routine replacement. We talked as well last week about uh, the idea that it begins not with routine replacement, but awareness. We have to figure out what our cues and rewards are. Uh, and we talked about the idea that ultimately we really benefit from both uh, faith, belief in God, uh, and also community to, to stick with that changed habit. Okay, uh, That sounds vaguely familiar to everybody. All right. So tonight we're going to talk about addictions. And a lot of what we've done is be- going to be relevant, but they're going to be um, some pretty significant differences. Uh, so I want to start, start talking about drug addiction. And I want to suggest that uh, the, the idea of seeking out mind altering substances is, is somehow intrinsic to most um, life on earth. Okay? So, uh, for example, almost all human cultures have a drug of choice. And almost all human cultures think that their drug of choice is wonderful and sublime and spiritual and helpful and everyone else is disgusting for their choices right um, what's what's our culture's drug of choice alcohol right uh, booze right absolutely right i mean well, we we do alcohol with everything right alcohol with dinner at night at home alcohol and we go out to a restaurant alcohol at the ball game alcohol makes everything better right? um, now um, we don't really think that opium is such a popular drug right we people use it a lot but it's not our culture's drug of choice we think it's bad and we and i would agree with that, by the way. I'm on board with opium being bad. Um, uh, but, but the point is that uh, other cultures have felt differently. So the Roman Empire, for example, thought opium was a wonderful thing. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, who's one of the emperors in the Pax Romana uh, in the like 170 AD, an incredibly successful Roman emperor, uh, great general, great leader, was a huge opium addict. Uh, and in fact, um, Because of him and because of this guy Galen who was his physician, opium became popular in Rome and by a hundred years or so later opium was a mainstay of Roman culture. So it was the poppy was printed on their coins and the poppy was inscribed on all their temples and used in all their religious practices. There was a census in 312 AD which said there were 793 shops in Rome where you could buy opium. Now Rome wasn't that huge a city, right? That's a huge amount of availability. Every culture has their drug of choice. Uh, interestingly, uh, even non-human species seem to like drugs, which I know sounds a little crazy. Uh, but there's an unbelievable amount of research done that shows uh, that all kinds of mammals, at least, will seek out mind-altering substances. So animals will go eat fermented food on the ground, uh, not in a large enough quantity to uh, be satiated by the food, but in a small enough quantity to be affected by the drug by the alcohol or whatever. The best example is uh, there's a a group of reindeer farmers in Siberia. Uh, I'm going to get their name wrong. I think they're called the Chukchi. Uh, And they they have a group of domesticated reindeer. Uh, And that tribe of of Siberians finds these bright red psychedelic mushrooms and they consume them for the narcotic effect. And their reindeer eat them too. Uh, And the interesting thing about the reindeer, so the reindeer will seek out these mushrooms if they find them under a tree. They'll gobble them up and then they'll you know, twitch their head and kind of walk crazy and leave the bird for hours and hours and wander back. What's really interesting about the mushrooms uh, is, is uh, the, I forget the name of it, but there's an acid that produces that effect that's in the mushroom. Uh, and by the time it leaves your bloodstream, uh, there's still about 80% of that acid left, which means um, when the reindeer eat that mushroom and they pee it out, the, their urine still has 80% effectiveness of this psychedelic drug. So the reindeer will fight each other for the privilege of eating that yellow snow so they can get the drug effect, right? Which is just gross on a whole lot of levels, right? Um, but the point is, they're, they're not eating, they're not going after that yellow snow for a nutritional value, right? They're going after it because they want to get high. Reindeer like to get high, okay? Um, which There's got to be a Santa joke in there somewhere. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I thought everybody knew that, no? <laughs> okay. Uh, so th- th- this idea that... Uh, Uh, that uh, drug use is um, a new concept or uh, this wildly aberrant concept is a little bit false. It's always been around, okay? Um, I want to talk about why uh, it becomes addictive, uh, why it's so destructive for us. And I want to begin by asking the question about what distinguishes a habit from an addiction. Anybody want to take a stab at that? What's the difference between a habit and an addiction? It's a hard question, actually. Okay, great. So uh, maybe you can break a addiction. Great, good, excellent. Anybody else want to add to that? Please do. You 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 expand upon your point. Mm-hmm. 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 Great. Um, so how he said. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, he he smoked uh, three packs a day. He broke. Uh, he no longer smokes, but he's still an addict. If he picked up a cigarette today, he'd be right back where he was. Excellent. Great point. Good. Yep. Okay. Great. So if you uh, the idea if you if you have an addiction, um, there's a negative effect of not practicing your addiction. So if I have a habit of um, Brushing my teeth in the morning, I don't feel bad all day long if I don't brush my teeth. Or maybe I do, depending on my breath and whatever else. But uh, but but if I have an addiction to nicotine and I don't smoke my cigarettes, I feel negatively. Oh, yeah. Okay. Great. Good point. Excellent. Anybody else want to add to that. Okay. Okay. So uh, the idea of, of there's a mind altering component to addiction that we don't always think of related to a habit. Okay. Great. Excellent. Good answers. Yep, yeah, Mike. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Great. Okay. Excellent. So uh, the idea that habits can become destructive. One glass of wine maybe loosens you up, but you can get into a, a, a pattern of doing one after another after another, and that becomes destructive. That's great. Okay. Good. Great answers. Anybody want to add? I think yeah, Wendy. So uh, the idea that um, you know, I have a, uh, it feels like I have more control over a habit. A more uncomfortable and a lack of control related to an addiction. Am I summarizing that? Okay, excellent, good, Gene. Ooh, that's good. Okay, Gene uh, uh, said you have habit addiction has you. That's great. Okay, um, boy, write that down. That's good. Um, uh, okay, <coughs> I, I really think that's helpful. Um, uh, David Linden uh, wrote this <coughs> wonderful book that's really difficult to approach uh, in terms of its density, but it's called uh, The Compass of Pleasure, and it, it talks about addiction and um, how pleasure works in the brain. And, and David says, uh, An addiction can be defined as a persistent compulsive behavior in the face of increasingly negative life consequences. Uh, and I, I like that, that it's a, um, a persistent compulsive behavior in the face of increasingly negative life consequences. Um and I actually, I think a lot of what you guys just summed up. Um, I want to just pull out <clears throat> one, one passage of the Bible that, that helps me think about this idea of addiction. Uh, and this is the, the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. And um, in Romans, Paul talks about sin, and I think his language about sin is strikingly similar to our language about addiction. Okay, so uh, this is uh, Romans seven fourteen. Paul says, "We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual." Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer, I do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay, this is getting a little bit hard to follow all the do's and the do-nots. Um, but but you get his point. His point is uh, I want to sin, but I find myself compulsively, sinning. Uh, and it's destructive, right? I know this behavior. My whatever my sin is is destructive for myself, but I can't seem to stop. Uh, that that my choices don't seem to trump my behavior. Um, that's a, that's a wonderful definition of addiction, right? Uh, and, and sin, uh, Paul, in a nutshell, is kind of saying, we're addicted to sin, right? Uh, we are. We're addicted. To, this is one of the reasons why we need Jesus so desperately. We, we can't stop sinning on our own. We need Jesus' help. Even if I get rid of one sin, I'll replace it with another, right? Christ has come and set me free. Um, <clears throat> so Paul says, I see this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. (coughs) I think you could probably take um, any person who's an addict, uh, heroin addict, uh, drug addict, alcoholic, whatever, and say, um, uh, replace the word uh, law of sin with their drug of choice, right? Um, I I see another law within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of my alcohol or making me a prisoner of my heroin, right? Um, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ my Lord. Uh, so, uh, I want to suggest that um, as we think about this idea of addiction in general, um, there there's a, a, a massively spiritual component to this. It's not just the, the, the issue of um, uh, particular addiction to particular substances. Um, I think this idea of addiction of, of, um, Compulsively, behave, uh, compulsively engaging in behavior that has negatively, uh, increasingly negative life consequences rings true for all of us in some way, right? Uh, it, it connects to everybody a little bit, even if we don't all have a, a classic addiction. Okay, um, uh, I, I want to talk about just two quick things before we get into this pattern uh, of addiction signs. Uh, I, I want to say, first of all, um, that addiction doesn't have to just be... Um, Drug-related. I'm going to begin by talking about drug-related stuff, but we're going to come back to that idea in a minute because um, I'm a firm believer that you can be addicted to things beyond just substances. Okay. <clears throat> I also want to point out the fact that not everybody who uses drugs gets addicted. Um, so I had a great conversation with somebody. Um, I think it was Cheryl, actually, um, after our last, where we talked about changing habits, and she was saying, "Hey, you know, when I was younger, I smoked. And I stopped smoking, and it wasn't easy, but I did. <coughs> I didn't necessarily need all the stuff we talked about." that habit-changing class. Right? I didn't necessarily need the, the routine replacement. I didn't necessarily have um, a community that helped me break it. I just stopped doing it. Um, the the two, two thoughts there. One is it is certainly possible to change without of this material, right? You can change without. Um, but not everybody who uses drugs is addicted to drugs. So I think in our first class, we talked about the fact that 80% of people that smoke cigarettes get addicted to nicotine. Now 20% don't. So you may be in that 20% who's just is not addicted. You really like them. You had a habit, but not an addiction. Um, only 35% of people who use heroin get addicted to heroin. So a lot of people can stop doing heroin because they didn't have an addiction, and they can just stop. Right? They just simply decide they're not going to do it anymore. Maybe they have a habit, but a habit and an addiction are different. Okay. Uh, oh, um, what makes a, a, an addiction distinct? What makes an addiction distinct from a habit? Um, I listed in your little handout there, I think, six different... Um, steps of sort of a, a, a pattern of addiction, what addiction looks like, and um, I want to go through those a little bit in detail tonight. <coughs> By the way, I, I realize your handout has a. lot. If we don't get through all of it tonight. That's okay. We'll get there eventually. We got tomorrow as well. we got next week as well. Um, so uh, six steps that are sort of signs about addiction. So um, the first is, is this idea of tolerance, right? And We've all heard of tolerance. It's the idea that um, the more you take a drug, the more you need to get the same effect, right? Um, so you know, if, if you were in college, alcohol in college, uh, you know what this is like, right? That the first few times you went out and you drank a little bit, um, you took a couple beers and you, right? Over time, if you drank a lot in college, um, you needed four, five, six beers to have that same experience. That's true with all substances, right? So heroin or cocaine or um, the more your body uses it, the more your body builds up a tolerance against it. Of that substance, it takes to achieve the same effect. Okay, Um, and and that tolerance leads us directly into dependence. And dependence is uh, the idea that there's a negative mental or physical symptoms that come when you don't have the drug. Okay, Uh, so tolerance and dependence go together. Uh, Just imagine a this is a little graph. So imagine this graph uh, is about um, sort of the euphoric experience, the high, and then the crash, the low. And this zero is your baseline, okay? So before you use a drug at all, um, this is kind of how you feel. This is your mood, your um, your sense of um, enjoyment and pleasure. Uh, let's say uh, you just shoot heroin. And so the first time you take heroin, you have this huge spike, right? I mean, I mean, people take heroin and get addicted to because it, it feels really good the first few times you do it. Well, it feels really good for a long time after you do it. Um, you have this spike, and then you're going to have a dip, right? Um, and over time that dip is going to take you below, OK? Uh, and then you're going to shoot a heroin again. And you're going to have a spike again. Uh, but this time, your spike's not going to be quite as high. And your low is going to be a little bit lower, OK? Uh, over time, uh, this pattern continues uh, until eventually you're not taking heroin to feel good anymore. You're taking heroin to stop feeling bad, OK? Uh, this is the idea of, of a dependence um, that I, I have this physical need for it that without it, um, I, I can't be happy. We, this leads into this idea of craving that once I, I can no longer reach my baseline without the drug, I start thinking about the drug all the time. Right. So uh, <coughs> uh, there's um, a lot of material about how often people spend in this loop, but you can kind of imagine folks in this, in this addiction loop they're always either, um, let's see if I can do this up here, they're always either preoccupied, um, that's not how you spell preoccupied, whatever, preoccupied, um, or they're um, using, or they're craving. Um, and the, um, the, the the challenge with craving is it becomes increasingly difficult to get out of this addiction now, um, I need more than I needed before because of my tolerance uh, to have the same effect. Uh, Now, um, this negative sense of withdrawal um, or or habit, I can't be happy without it. And I'm always obsessing about it, right? So I'm constantly thinking about um, that drug is the way to get back to my my baseline, my happiness. Uh, And then the fourth step, and this is really big, uh, is that pleasure gets replaced by desire. Or or in other words, liking becomes wanting. So, we have this idea that uh, people who are alcoholics are alcoholics because they just love alcohol. Right? It just brings them so much joy, and that's why they drink it all the time. It's not really the case, right? An alcoholic takes almost no joy in alcohol. An alcoholic's just miserable without it. And so, liking and enjoyment becomes wanting. Um, same thing true with, with most substance abuse. Uh, there's a great, I think it's in the screw tape letters, it's definitely something that C.S. Lewis wrote, where he talks about Satan's goal for us in sin. Uh, and Lewis says that initially Satan wants to seduce us with sins that feel really good, right? So it's it's easy to say, hey, come uh, to party and have some alcohol, have a lot of fun, and boy, you'll feel good about yourself and it's great. But ultimately, Satan doesn't want to just have us sin. He wants to make us miserable in our sin, right? Ultimately, his goal is not just that you would uh, engage in behavior that takes you from God, but that you'd hate yourself while you're doing it. Right? That's what addiction does. Right? Uh, addiction doesn't just take you into this life behavior. It makes you not enjoy it anymore. Uh, liking becomes wanting. <clears throat> uh, and then um, after we kind of get into that trap, um, we, we um, work to get out of that pattern, and then we, we, we talk about relapse a lot, right? So uh, another component of addiction is this idea that even when I try to get clean, um, there are so many triggers for me, so many emotional and environmental and physical triggers that remind me of my experience in using that as I get away from that habit, I'm, I'm drawn back almost against my will, right? That's the idea of relapse. Is that I'm Almost against my will I end up back uh, at that same drug again. Uh, and then there's this last quality called uh, uh, sensitization, which is basically the idea that um, if you are an addict and you sober up for a while, for a period of time, uh, and then you go back, you relapse, go back to your drug, the first time you use again, you have a, a meteoric high. Right? It's far out of proportion to your first high, the first time you used. Um, it's just a, the way the chemicals work in your brain. And so um, when you go back, it feels really good. Um, and it's almost like that's how we get looped, I mean, that's how Satan loops back in, right? It feels good, I get back into it, and then I go through that whole process again, right? Liking becomes wanting, uh, and, I, and I just need it. I don't enjoy it anymore. When we think about addiction... Those qualities—tolerance, uh, dependence, craving, uh, pleasure replaced by desire, lapse, and drug sensitization—are are good qualities for us to say, "Hey, is this addiction or just a habit?" Right. So, uh, if I'm smoking cigarettes and um, I don't have uh, any of those experiences, then I'm just smoking cigarettes, right? I've got—I've got a habit, but I don't—I don't have an addiction. Um, uh, and I might, at the early stages of addiction, uh, develop a tolerance, but not yet have. Uh, a craving, or I might still be enjoying it even though I'm doing what I'm doing, right? Uh, so uh, the, the further you progress in your addiction, uh, the, the further down that set of behaviors you'll go. Um, does that make sense a little bit? Um, do those, those, I, those six ideas kind of make sense? Some of that you've heard before, I, I'm sure. Um, okay, <clears throat> so then I want to suggest uh, that those same effects um, of addiction, those same signs of addiction, merge not just with substance abu- uh, abuse but also with behaviors right? um, and, and I guess you should substance abuse includes food right you can you can ab- ab- abuse food and there are chemical effects of abusing food um, but the um, you can be addicted to uh, sex or gambling or video games um, and they can produce the same pattern of addiction uh, same pattern of tolerance and 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 um, Liking becoming wanting and relapse and all of that stuff can show up in the same way. And and, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the brain chemistry can be remarkably similar, okay? Uh, the, between the behavioral addiction and the substance addiction. Um, so um, a lot of folks would say, and, and uh, not that I'm an expert, but, but I would fall in the, in the line of, with them, that you can be as addicted, almost as addicted to one of those qualities as you can be to something like heroin or nicotine. Um, there's a, there's a book called Born to Lose by a guy named Bill Lee, uh, and it's about his gambling addiction. <clears throat> and, and Bill Lee is, is um, the, the third person in, in three generations of gamblers. His great-grandfather uh, was in China. He was Chinese, and uh, he lost a, a number of gambling debts, and so he ended up having to sell. His great-grandfather sold his father uh, into slavery to pay for one of his gambling debts. His father eventually uh, and his new new family came to uh, the United States, um, got free, and he began to engage in gambling. And his father would take Bill with him when he went to the gambling um, places in, in Chinatown because he thought his son was like a good luck charm. His son, uh, or Bill, the, the author of the book, uh, began gambling when he was uh, in elementary school. He would cut classes so he could gamble for coins and baseball cards. Uh, and as he grew older, that... Pattern continued in pretty dramatic ways. Now he was pretty successful in life, uh, and so Bill managed to—I um, forget—I think he went to Stanford, some some big-name school, had a pretty high-powered job, and um, had a wife and a child. And and this is not unusual, by the way. A lot of folks that deal with pretty profound addictions can manage uh, a, a public life and a public face pretty effectively for a long time. Um, But ultimately, Bill's uh, marriage started kind of falling apart. Uh, And as it did, his addiction became more and more profound. Uh, And Bill talks about this experience of um, coming home from work and uh, in this season when his marriage was falling apart, coming home from work, uh, and then and he was working in Silicon Valley at the time. And then he would drive four hours to get to the gambling halls in Vegas and he would gamble for hours He'd drive four hours back home, half asleep on the icy roads, not, uh, and half asleep so that he could get up the next morning, get back to work, and do it all over again. Uh, and he said, over time, uh, as um, as his marriage game kind of came apart at the seams more and more and more, um, he found himself craving that gambling more quickly. Right. So initially, he'd he'd do one of those trips and he'd come home, and he'd go three or four days without thinking about the tables, and then. It was a couple days, then it was one day, then it was by the time he walked in the door, he was already thinking about going back. Um, That's that tolerance idea, right? Um, He said uh, eventually, it wasn't that he got any joy out of it, he just felt like he needed to be there. He couldn't make it through his day unless he had gambling in his life, right? That's that liking becomes wanting idea. Uh, uh, And as he describes his addiction, it sounds exactly like we describe heroin addiction or alcohol addiction. Um, And it turns out a lot of the things happening in the brain are pretty similar. Um, so, uh, uh, we don't need to go into all of it, but we see that same pattern with um, sex addiction. We see that same pattern with video game addiction. Um, there are some distinctions between those behavioral things and between chemical things, um, but that um, that pattern of those six ideas uh, and that definition of addiction as something that has uh, um, compulsive behavior with increasingly destructive life consequences, that fits pretty well in Um, and those alternative options, okay, and those behavioral sort of. Okay, Um, so I want to talk about um, what addiction is, and and I want to say, first and foremost, that addiction is a disease, Uh, and and, and I know this is kind of, sometimes it's sort of a controversial idea, because um, we feel like addiction is a disease, lets people off the hook, Um, but, but it's not that, and in fact, of addiction being disease is, is pretty essential to understanding it and also to beating it. Okay, so um, who here has ever had a glass of wine or a beer or any kind of alcohol? Okay, um, now statistically, most are not alcoholics. Right? Why not? Right, uh, I think it's one in twelve. I can't remember, but there's some. You're right. Yeah. Um, why, why, why did you? If you didn't become an alcoholic, why didn't you? Like, why can you have a glass of wine and be okay, but somebody else can't? Now, it's a pretty interesting question, actually. We don't really know the answer, um, but we do know that there are a lot of factors and that genetics is a big one. Um, we know that there are um, uh, identical twins who, um, if one has an alcohol addiction, the other one is between 40 and 60 percent more likely than the average person to have an alcohol addiction as well. Um there, there are uh, just just a ton of research about this now we can't nail it down to a single addiction gene um, but we're pretty sure uh, that um, you become an addict not because you're minded um, but because um, you are somehow predisposed to that addiction um, uh, there's a there's a guy named uh, Mitch Hedberg he was a comedian who passed away a number of years ago and Mitch Hedberg has a routine which I really can't repeat here and um, he talks about uh, uh, alcohol and alcoholism as an addiction. We say it's, it's, it's a disease, but it's a disease that you can get in trouble for having, right? He says, you know, nobody ever says, um, "Hey, Jim, you idiot, you're an alcoholic." Jim, you idiot, you have lupus. One of those sounds weird, right? One of those doesn't. Um, and, and his point is well made that um, that we've stigmatized this disease so much that it gets it's become difficult to get better. Right? We've also tried punishing people for their addictions, which also makes it difficult to get better. Um, because it's not a behavioral choice, right? We know this even about habits. We already know that habits aren't purely a logical or rational choice. Um, addictions are even beyond that. There, um, There's uh, stuff going in the brain that um, precludes a lot of our logic and reason. Um, the, uh, this guy David Linden, who I really enjoy, wrote this excellent book, says, are we letting addicts off the hook for their behaviors by using the language of addiction? No. A disease model of addiction holds that the development of addiction is not the addict's responsibility. However, recovering from addiction is, okay? This is a huge idea. So uh, if you're an addict, it's not your fault, but you're responsible for getting better. Um, If you have cancer, it's not your fault. No one should ever come up to you and say, hey, it's your fault you have cancer. But now that you know you have cancer, there are probably some foods you should and shouldn't eat, there's probably some exercises you should and shouldn't do, There's probably some substances that were okay to use before that you shouldn't use anymore. Uh, And you are responsible for your health going forward, right? You are responsible for your own treatment and and recovery. Um, And if you don't take your medicines and if you don't eat the right foods, uh, then um, that's where your responsibility comes in, right? Does that make sense? Um, Same thing's true with addiction. Uh, That you're not responsible for becoming addicted to your substance or behavior. So um, the fact that I lucked out and I can have a beer and not uh, have it over, compulsion to drink, and you didn't. Uh, doesn't make me better than you. It doesn't make you worse than me. But once you have the disease, once you have the addiction, how you handle it is up to you. Right? That's where your responsibility comes into play. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, oh gosh, um, hmm, okay, yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I do think that um, though a, a lot of it is and, uh, we also have a culture that encourages addiction. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, we have a culture that encourages sort of this uh, divorce from community and this isolation. Uh, and those are conditions that are conducive to uh, uh, addiction formation. And this is kind of what we talked about on Sunday. I don't need to rehash the sermon. But this this idea that um, the more isolated I am, the more uh, I'm able to seek out pleasure in these addictions instead of healthy um, uh, community and relationships. We have a culture that encourages that, right? So I 50 years ago, if I was going to be a gambling addict, I had to drive someplace to gamble, right? It, it was a little bit harder. Now I can sit on my computer and gamble on the internet all day long, and it's faster, and uh, I never have to stop. No one has to know about it until I run out of money, right? Um, same thing's true if I was a uh a, a addict. I, I used to have to um, go to a brothel, and when I say I used to, I mean people used to, right? Just to be clear. Uh and whatever, and there's all the stigma, and someone might notice you, whatever else, and, and, and now you've got your computer right there, right? And you can go look on the internet. Um, uh, and, and even, you know, controlled substances are just so much more available than they used to be, right? It's, it's easy to get alcohol. Actually, it's probably harder to get alcohol than it is to get almost anything else if you're underage. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so much heroin addiction because there's so much heroin, right? Everybody's got it. I have a, a number of friends who are heroin addicts, and um, one of them said that within... Um, about three hours of being in a city, he can find heroin. Uh, In a new city, he can find heroin. It's incredible. Um, So I I do think that we have a culture that's made that easier and more difficult. Um, uh, Easier to become addicted and more difficult to get clean. All right, I want to talk for a minute about um, what's happening in the brain when we have addictions. And I'm just going to do this real fast because this is not my area of expertise. Um, But I think it's really important um, because it helps us understand a little bit about why... um, those behaviors and those substances have a similar effect uh, in in producing addiction. So um, (coughs) there's, you know, these psychologists love their rats, right? Um, So there's a um, number of studies about um, this, something called the medial forebrain pleasure circuit, um, which is a a, a grouping of of, um, components of our our brains. And in the medial forebrain pleasure circuit um, is where all of this, um, addiction happens your happenings. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful experiment. Um, well, I guess it wasn't wonderful for the rats, but wonderful for us, uh, where they hooked up rats in these boxes. And we talked about this before in, in habit formation. hooked up rats in boxes, and they attached electrodes directly to their brains. Um, they have a lever, and the lever would trigger a pleasurable stimulus in this uh, medial forebrain pleasure circuit. Uh, and, and what they found is that um, once that was hooked up and once the, the rat understood the lever would trigger that, that pleasurable instinct, the rat would do that forever um, uh, to the exclusion of all other things. Right? So the rat would, uh, a male rat would walk past a female rat in heat. A male rat would walk across um, electric shock pads on his feet to get to the lever. Um, a, a nursing mother would ignore her. Uh, to go push that lever, and they would just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until they were no longer able to do so. Um, uh, and and, and uh, recognition is that's exactly what happens with an addict, right? That this is, this is what we're doing, is we're, we're mashing the pleasure button uh, in our brains. Uh, so um, the, the, I'm not going to be able to explain all of it anyway, but I'm going to just show you the circuit real quick. So um, th- these are uh, several components of your brain that are connected to this sort of medial forebrain pleasure circuit. Um, and, and, and the, the kind of central takeaway, I guess, is um, the, the VT, VTA, the tegmental area, um, uh, connects to all these other components of your brain, including your prefrontal cortex where all of your um, reasoning happens. Okay, uh, uh, and, and, and there are these, uh, these dopamine connections where um, dopamine is released into these synapses. Uh, and um, what what most drugs do, uh, heroin and alcohol, whatever else, is they um, either increase the amount of dopamine your body releases into those synapses, or they keep you from reuptaking that dopamine appropriately into the rest of your body. Uh, And so the effect is you you have this euphoria, right? Um, The same thing happens with a lot of our behavioral stuff. So if I gamble or if I'm um, uh, playing video games or whatever else, I get an increased amount of dopamine in my brain. Now, it's not the same as heroin, right? You get a larger hit with heroin than you do with just playing a video game for 20 minutes. Um, but ultimately, I can end up with that same um, biological experience of, boy, I, um, I need my behavior, even if it's gambling or whatever else, to release that dopamine to be happy, okay? Um, and that, because I can't. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true, Okay. So uh, here's why this matters. Uh, this matters because there is a physical component to addiction, right? There is a recognition that our brains are, are literally being wired um, by our addiction, whether that's a, a substance or a behavior. Uh, and uh, it really comes down to that dopamine idea. There, there are drugs that don't release dopamine into your body and don't make us addicted, right? So um, LSD is a psychedelic drug that a lot of people, I, a lot of friends in high school took LSD. All my friends are messed up. Anyway, um, and uh, you you cannot get addicted to LSD, right? It it doesn't release dopamine in your brain. Uh, Unlike cocaine or heroin or alcohol, it doesn't have this effect. You cannot get addicted to LSD. You can have a habit for LSD, but you can't have an addiction. Um, Same thing's true about something like Prozac, right? Prozac is an SSRI. It's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, It doesn't affect dopamine. Uh, And so you can't get addicted to Prozac. so there are a lot of things that we can do and take that don't have this experience. Um, but when you get this experience of, of uh, your dopamine levels being elevated, uh, that's when we talk about the, the chemistry aspect of your of your mental addiction. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay? Okay, good. Um, I'm really glad you didn't ask me any questions about that one because I don't know anything. Um, all right. Uh, David Lennon has one more quote. I think is really helpful for us as we think about this idea of addiction. He says, uh, The activity... Get this this um, component of our brain, an isolation results in a lifeless pleasure lacking color and depth. What makes pleasure so compelling is that through the interconnection of the pleasure circuit with the other brain regions, we adorn it with memory, with associations and emotions and social meaning, with sights, sounds, and smells. A circuit-level model of pleasure shows us what is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, in other words, what he's saying is um, we can just mash the pleasure button, right? We can just shoot up our drug or do our behavior um, over and over and over again, but it's vacuous. Um, this is why it's so destructive for us is that it's not connected to anything healthy and good. That's not, it's not connected to relationships or people or life uh, or creation. It's just pleasure for pleasure's sake. Okay, And when you have just pleasure for pleasure's sake, that's when it becomes really destructive for us. Um, that make sense? Okay. Um, all right. All uh, right. We are definitely not going to finish this tonight, but I want to talk a little bit about how we break addictions, okay? And we'll, we'll do as much as we do and, and, and we'll see where we go. Um, so I, I want to begin kind of reiterating some of the things we talked about last week. Um, we talked last week about awareness. I said this week acceptance. There's similar ideas uh, that the first step of, of breaking an addiction is there's got to be some acceptance that I've got an addiction. Um, I remember um, years ago in a different church talking with. Uh, student uh, well I thought he was a student he was a college student who was a heroin addict and um, it was a bad night and um, he was angry and he was I was kind of with him and his parents and he was yelling at his parents and all this stuff about you, know, you don't love me and how could you ask me to do these things and all this stuff and um, and then he kind of stormed out of the house and I walked with him and and as we, we probably walked for an hour and a half just just frantically walking around town I don't want to leave him because I don't think he's safe and um, he's just out of his mind, right, because he's high on heroin. Uh, And as we talked, um, I started realizing that um, he had this really complex web of lies that he had told himself about his family, about his life, about God, about all these things that allowed him to support his... That he needed to believe all these things. that just sounded insane to me because if he didn't believe them, he couldn't justify what he was doing. Uh, and and I, as we walked around, I, I mean, I kind of tried to gently encourage him to see the light and the truth, and it unexpectedly, I mean, unsurprisingly, didn't work at all. Right? Unsurprisingly, he was he was firmly committed to his worldview. Uh, because The worldview allowed him the behavior he wanted to have. Um, and it was it was overwhelmingly heartbreaking, but it was also eye opening. Uh, I also came to realize uh, that um, for him to ever get healthy, he needed to recognize. Um, that heroin was destroying his life and not that everyone else was destroying his life. I mean, he knew his life was a disaster, but he just wanted to blame his parents. He wanted to blame the church. He wanted to blame the school. He wanted to blame the doctor. He wanted to blame all these other people. And I said, let's blame heroin, right? Heroin is your problem. Um, And he couldn't see that. Uh, And I realized that until he saw that, nothing else mattered. He's never going to get any help until he recognizes that heroin is destroying his life. Uh, And so the the first step for anyone to to get healthy is, Acceptance, right? It's this recognition that, um, that our disease is destroying us and that we have this disease. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that you cannot force anyone to, to recognize or to accept their addiction. right? You can't do that. Um, what you can do sometimes uh, is that you can occasionally um, help them hit rock bottom. So we, we talk about the idea of, of hitting rock bottom. Uh, um, AA talks about that a lot, this idea that you've got to get to a point where Things are so painful you need to change. Uh, there's this idea uh, that all change, all addiction begins with uh, people who are insane and have no pain. And then you become insane with them, and then you become pain and there's the of what you've always been doing. Uh, and so we talk about, you know, that he's got to hit rock bottom. She's got to hit rock bottom. She's got to get to the point where she's so miserable that she recognizes it's alcohol ruining her life and not all the other lies she's made up. Uh, There are times we can raise the bottom. Uh, So I've shared with you guys before, but I I had a a close friend who was an alcoholic and a a, a cocaine addict, and um, uh, we did an intervention for him. And the whole idea of an intervention is you want to raise the bottom, right? That I'd like uh, to have this experience between you and me and our family be so traumatic um, that this is the bottom for you. That you don't have to bottom out ODing in a hospital somewhere. Uh, That this is the moment that shocks you, that causes you enough pain to change uh, now, uh, I- interventions are complicated, and um, there's a right and a wrong way to do them. But a- occasionally, that can be effective. Right? Occasionally, we can we can come to somebody and say, "Hey, I, I, I I'm going to help raise that bottom for you. I, I'm going I'm going to help you recognize um, that you've changed, and that our relationship will have to change if you uh, come to some acceptance about what's ruining your life and ruining mine." Um, the The reality is that even then, um, the ultimate responsibility is on the person, not on us, right? That, that even then I can't force them into acceptance. So uh, the, the, the analogy for me is uh, the sort of ministry of Jesus, especially Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel, right? So as, as Jesus is um, going about Israel, all the prostitutes and the alcoholics and the uh, uh, tax collectors and the sinners are really into him, and all the religious people are not. Right? All the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes are not liking what Jesus is selling uh, and, and, and Jesus keeps coming back to them and he tries to help them realize that um, the, the, the spiritual arrogance that they have and their self-righteousness is more destructive than any of the other sins that they're condemning. He wants them to realize uh, that their self-righteousness, their pride, their hypocrisy is their addiction, right? It is destroying their lives and will destroy their lives eternally if they can't repent. Uh, and first Jesus has dinner in their homes, and tries to become their friends, and that doesn't work. And then Jesus uh, debates them in the synagogues, and preaches them in the scriptures, and that doesn't work. Then Jesus does amazing miracles, and that doesn't work. Then Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, and that doesn't work. And, and ultimately, um, we recognize that even Jesus cannot or will not force people to change. Um, that that if we won't recognize our own sin, um, and, and, and God chooses not to force people to change, That ultimately, the, the people that get so those who are willing to accept, they're messed up. right? They're willing to accept that their sin is destructive. They're willing to accept that their sin is ruining their lives and they need Him. And if we won't accept that, we can't go forward. There's a lot we can do to try to help people in that regard, but ultimately, that's their responsibility. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about um, pain as God's megaphone to the world. Uh, there's a, a book called The Problem of C.S. Lewis, and uh, he says... Uh, you know, there's a world and we can't paint a broad brush, but sometimes God uses suffering to help wake us up, right? It's like he's trying to raise up the bottom. Uh, and, and we see this a lot in Scripture. When the Israelites are um, screwing up, God will send uh, a foreign army to conquer them, or he'll send a plague, or he'll send uh, a famine, or he'll make the rain stop for three years. And it's not because he doesn't like them, right? God might have anger, but he never has malice. He doesn't, he doesn't want to hurt them. He's trying to raise the bottom, right? He's trying to say, hey, I want you to change. I want you to recognize you have a destructive behavior. And if you won't get out of it, it's, it's going to be far worse than death. Um, wake up, right? Um, and I think God still uses pain as a megaphone to us. I don't want to suggest that all bad things are designed by God, but occasionally I think he works that way. Uh, So I think the first step for anybody to get healthy is um, to have this acceptance that I have a problem, right? That's the first step in AA, uh, recognizing you're powerless over your disease. Uh, The second step, and this is as far as we're going to make it tonight, I think. Um, The second step is external support. And and, and we talked last week about belief and about community. I'm not going to rehash that, though obviously those things are essential in addiction, even more than they are in in habit formation. I want to talk a little bit about what we do as uh, those folks who support addicts. Um, and, and I think we really struggle uh, to be effective supporters of our loved ones who are addicted. Uh, I have a friend who always says um, that if you expect an irrational person to act rationally, then you're the irrational one. Um, and I think that's incredibly true about people that are dealing with addiction. Right? That that. Uh, if I think I can treat you uh, in a rational, regular way, if I think our relationship um, post-addiction or during addiction can be the same as our relationship before your addiction, then I'm the crazy one. Right? That, that things have to change in our relationship for me to be a helpful support to you in the midst of your addiction. Um, uh, and, and I think maybe the most important thing that has to change is that I have to recognize um, that we'll only do those things that help you get better. And, 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 you know, we have this tendency uh, towards codependence, right? We have this tendency towards saying, hey, you've got a problem. Um, You're addicted to cocaine. I'm going to be addicted to your problem, right? So uh, just like uh, your whole life is uh, this experience with cocaine, this is going to become my life with you, right? Um, You're going to have a crisis, and then I'm going to think we had a really good moment, and things are better. Then you have another crisis, and it's going to be a little bit worse than the first, but we're going to have a good moment. It's not as good as it was, but it's, it, you're coming in the right direction. And then you're going to have a crisis. It's worse than it was before, but a little bit better. Not as good as it was before, but I'm just celebrating that this time, you know, we had Thanksgiving dinner and you weren't drunk during it. Uh, and then you have another crisis. You're a little bit better, but not as good as it was before, but I'm just celebrating this time you only had three or four drinks during Thanksgiving dinner. You didn't pass out, right? And then another crisis. You passed out during Thanksgiving dinner, but this time we didn't have to call the hospital, right? Um, and I'm satisfied less and less from right? Uh, and, and what I, you realize is that we codependence is the idea that we're addicted to their disease, right? We're addicted to helping them in their disease. Uh, and so I, I think one of the critical things for us, if we're trying to help people who are dealing with addiction, is to say, I'm only going to do those things that are helpful for you. Um, and that makes some helpful choices. I think I shared with the church, but um, this past Thanksgiving, I had a, a family friend uh, and um, Someone actually, we did this intervention for in the past, and this family friend um, called, and um, I think it was, I think actually it was was Thanksgiving night, and said that uh, he'd been arrested for a DUI, and he was in jail, and could we bail him out? (coughs) And, you know, um, it's Thanksgiving, and it's somebody you love. And they only need a few hundred or maybe, I think this in the case it was a couple thousand dollars. And you just think, boy, I don't want my loved one in jail for Thanksgiving. I don't know when they're going to get out of jail if I don't do this. Of course I want to make this happen. And of course I want to help them. Um, but we didn't. And we didn't bail them out because we said, that doesn't actually help you. Right? The more I help you avoid the consequences of your addiction, the more I um, uh, protect them from hitting Um, Though I do not want you in jail for Thanksgiving, I'd rather have you in jail for Thanksgiving than have you be an alcoholic. I'd rather have you in jail for Thanksgiving than have you be doing DUIs and kill someone else of your disease. Um, uh, And that's a hard decision, right? To say, hey, I'm going to let you um, suffer the consequences of your choices rather than protecting you and helping you. Um, But that's how I help you. I do not help you, uh, helping you avoid your own bad choices. And so I think this is really critical for us as we think about loving people with addiction. Uh, anything that you want to do to get better, I will be there for you, right? If you want to go to treatment and it's going to cost $30,000, I'll sell my car so you can go to treatment. Well, my car wouldn't be worth $30,000, but uh, whatever, right? I'll figure out, I'll figure out something. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do extra weddings on the weekends for a few years. Um, but uh, if, if you want to get out of jail because you've got a DUI, I'm sorry I'm leaving you in jail. It, it, it might cost 50 bucks to get you out I'm not. I don't want you out. I want you better. Right? Um, and, and I think that's key. Is that how do we help people understand that we, we, we want them better? right? We want them to be healthy. We want them to be whole again. Um, the other thing that we often do, uh, I, I, this is my last bit here, we, we, we often um, cover up for people who have addictions. Right? Some, somebody who's an alcoholic and... Um, i use a real-life example. So this person who was in, in jail for Thanksgiving... Wanted us to call their boss and say they couldn't come to work the next day. Obviously, because they were in jail. They wanted us to say uh, that they were traveling on business, or they're traveling for family things, or whatever. We said we we can't do that. Right? We can't do that. Uh, I don't need to call your boss and tell him that you're in jail. Right? I don't. I don't need to do that. But I will not cover for you. I will not do anything that helps you avoid the consequences of your choices. Um, and so, your choice was to drink and drive. You. Um, If you lose your job, then you lose your And I'm sorry, but maybe that would help you get better. And um, ultimately, maybe I have to say you can't live in my home. And ultimately, maybe I have to say, I'm sorry that you're homeless, but I won't give you money for food because I don't know what you're going to do with that money. You can come over and have dinner with me if you come over sober. Um, But I don't help you by helping you avoid your pain. Uh, I want you to reach acceptance so that we can get you whole again. Um, okay, i got to stop there because I'm way out of time. Um, questions about, so I, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about addiction and helping people next week. Um, but questions about addiction or um, what it is, the disease idea or how we help people or anything along those lines? Yes. Yeah, and the question is, am I still friends with that person? The answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Car- Right, so the question is, um, there's a school of thought that says if an, addicts know, an addict knows where she or he is going to get their next fix, then they can have a semi-normal life. Um, yeah, I don't believe it's true. Uh, I don't believe it's true because uh, they, they can't do this forever, right? I mean, there's a point where you, you need so much of a hit to get the same experience that that's all you do. Um, the, the, the key to addiction is it can be managed for a long time, right? So, I mean, you can have uh, a, a heroin addiction and still be working at Bank of America as a vice president, right? Um, and, and, and it happens all the time. The, the addiction doesn't mean your life is out of control all the time. Addiction means that uh, it's increasingly out of control, right? It means that over time uh, you will need more and more. Uh, you will enjoy it less and less and, and ultimately, yes, ultimately you're going to lose that job. For sure you are. Um, but it could take 20 years. You could be working in your job 20 years and be a heroin addict. Um, what tends to happen is we, we, it tends to be that the, the more personal connections you have, those ones break apart first. People that can't avoid seeing it, can't avoid seeing how it's destructive, those are the places that, that shatter first. Um, I've never seen anybody who was able to have that ruling um, model where I'll help you um, keep getting your hit. I've never seen that work um, and, and I think all the science would suggest that ultimately, um, neurochemically, it wouldn't be effective. Or ultimately, I got to gamble every day, all day long, to get the same experience. The, the other thing I would say about that is, uh, even for that twenty years where you're sort of making it all work, I still think you're dying inside. Right? I mean, uh, d- does it does it help you if I allow you to be miserable in a controlled way? I don't know that that's good. Right? I don't know that that Christ wants me to help you. Um, be miserable, but sort of keep your life together. I think that your life fall apart, so that you can be whole again, right? So that you can be free, so you can have real joy. Um, one of the components of, of, of this um, uh, dependence loop is that uh, over time you find less joy in other things as well, right? So the the more you need your drug of choice or your behavior of choice, the less joy you find in other regular behaviors, right? So um, if I'm, uh, if I'm a gambling addict. I find less and less joy in hanging out with my family, um, and less and less joy in talking to my friends, because while I'm talking to my friends, when I'm thinking about gambling, I'm the tables. Um, so it doesn't just ruin my enjoyment of the, the addiction itself; it tends to ruin my enjoyment of life. Jesus says, "I came that you may have life, and more life than you had before." And I think we're in the business of helping people have more life. Uh, that steals life from you is something I want to avoid at all costs great question. Um, any other questions? I know I'm over, but I got time for one more. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. The, the question is, um, uh, as you move along uh, this uh, tolerance dependence pattern, uh, eventually people overdose because they can't get enough, right? So uh, one dose isn't enough, two doses isn't enough, and three doses isn't enough. Um, I got to have more, and you end up overdosing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not, not all overdosing happens for that reason. A lot of it does. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happens with alcohol, right? I mean, you, uh, I mean it's, it's overdosing in another way, but you, know, you begin by having a couple of beers. You have three or four beers. Uh, then you're getting drunk. Then you're blacking out and not even remembering things, right? Because you're not blacking out because it's fun to black out than it is to have a few drinks and, and be funny at the party. You're blacking out because you have this need and you can't fill the need. And so you just keep pouring alcohol and hoping that it'll put the fire up. It never does. Uh, let me, I'm, I'm going to pray for us. Um, I, I'm, I'm cognizant that this is a pretty heavy topic. And so um, if you want to talk with me more afterwards, tonight or tomorrow, whatever, or um, next week, whatever, please, please do so because I'm interested in this conversation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we are reminded today uh, that you sent your Son to call us out of our compulsive, increasingly self-destructive behavior. You called it sin. And we're reminded today, Lord, that every one of us has uh, that same addiction to that same self-destructive behavior, that we need more sin for the same experience, that eventually enjoyment becomes wanting, uh, that ultimately we tend to relapse into our sin. Uh, And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to break that cycle, uh, that you would help us to be whole and healthy again. And then as people that have been redeemed by you, we pray you'd help us uh, to be sent out uh, to be those who, who rescue others, who are part of your work of, of calling people to life and to more life than they had before. And we know, Lord, that only Jesus Christ can, rec- can rescue us from our addictions and only Jesus Christ can rescue us from our sins and only Jesus Christ can rescue us from this body of death. Uh, and so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show up And rescue us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.